Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Welcome to my first episode of This Connected Life with a guest. I'm super excited to have as my guest today, Penny Lacasso. Penny is the world's first happiness hacker and on a mission to teach men and women, or women and girls primarily, how to intentionally adapt in order to future-proof happiness. Penny and I met at the space event in May this year at Byron Bay. And as soon as I met you, Penny, I thought I want to get to know you more. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. The first thing I want to know is what's a happiness hacker? <laughs> That's such a good question. You know, I've been interviewed for podcasts that many times and no one's ever asked me that. Seriously? <laughs> no, because people obviously, they love the term and no one's ever asked me to explain it. And, and I'm really glad that you did. <laughs> it seems very obvious. So for me, hacking is about I always think of, you know, computer hackers. It's about breaking into something in order to better understand it. That's how I kind of, that would be my definition of hacking. So when I came up with the title Happiness Hacker, one, I wanted a title that engaged people and wanted them or made them curious to want to know more about what I was doing. And two, my whole journey since I left my past life and stepped into the life that I have now over the last five years has been about hacking happiness and finding ways to make every day just a little bit brighter and a little bit more joyous. So what do you do? How do you hack happiness? What do I do? Well, I do a few things. So I read a hell of a lot. And by reading, I look to find the best of the best in terms of what makes people happier in the everyday. And what I've discovered is that predominantly it's about experimenting with new habits and behaviours. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. I embed habits and behaviours. So rather than having sort of these long-term goals and aspirations to be this amazing human, the consistent thing that I read is that if you want to be something, look at how you can show up in the everyday in that way. And that's kind of how I hack happiness. It's about looking at how I show up in the everyday in terms of the habits and the behaviours that I have and what can I learn from the best of the best out there to actually use those habits and behaviours to become the best version of me. So what makes you happy? So many things. My son makes me extremely happy. He's nine years old and the older I get and the more I engage with him, the more I want to do more things with him. Last night, as an example, you know, we've got one of those beautiful artistic colouring books and we did a colouring together and talked about our day. Things like that make me happy. My black Labrador makes me really happy. Human connection makes me extremely happy. I love meeting people. I love spending time with people, especially people who look at the world through a different lens and challenge my beliefs and my thinking. Nature makes me extremely happy. I love, you know, I've just recently returned from trekking 120 k's through the Himalayas to a base camp with my son. So, yeah, they're just a few of the things that make me happy. What makes you happy, Mel? Oh, I try and do something every day that makes me happy. And when you said you love to read, the one thing that I love doing is curling up in bed with a book. And I try and go to bed every night half an hour before I plan to turn the light out so that I can just read a book. 
And mm-hmm. if that time gets interrupted, <laughs> look out. Every now and then my husband will come to bed before I'm ready for him to and he would want to have a conversation. I'm like, no, no, I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been here long enough yet for me to be ready to have a conversation with you. And we've had the last three hours together in the living room where you've been watching TV. So that was your chance, bud. <laughs> <laughs> My chickens make me happy. We've got five chickens and it's very difficult to be unhappy when you look at chickens. They are crazy. You know what's so interesting though is whenever, I mean, we do all these exercises in different programs that we run around what makes people happy and what I find fascinating is that it's the simple things. We make life so complicated and we're all spending so much time aspiring for all these material objects to be perceived as this person that we think will be looked at as successful but every time I ask someone to tell me what makes them happy it's the things that are easily accessible. Exactly it's like when people say to you where's your favorite place people always say New York or the Himalayas or some far-flung place where they've had an amazing holiday or where they have great memories but my favorite place is my back deck with a book and a glass of wine because I can do that every day. Whereas I love New York and I love our holiday house and I love traveling. And I've got some fabulous memories of some incredible places I've been to that I love and would love to spend more time there. But to go back is aspirational. And I think your favorite things and your favorite people and your favorite places need to be accessible. Otherwise, it's too far in between joy, periods of joy when you get to spend time with those things, doing those things or being with those people. Now, joy is an interesting word, isn't it? It is. I read recently, I love this, I I read recently that there are two questions that the ancient Egyptians believe they are asked when they get to the afterlife to determine sort of where they go. And the two questions are, did you find joy in life and did you bring joy to others? And I just, it's so simple and so beautiful when I read it. And I was like, If we could just live our lives by those two questions every day, I think life could be a hell of a lot happier. Yeah, I love that. My take is more around being kind, but Mm. joy and kindness are very interlinked in my world. And I think, what have I done today to be kind? And how have I received kindness in a way that's gracious? So I was at a lunch earlier and we were talking about gratitude and one of the things that annoys me more than anything is when people give you a compliment or say thank you, particularly in the workplace. If your boss says thank you to you, you've done a great day's work today, I really appreciate it, the correct response is you're very welcome. The incorrect response is that's my job, I'm getting paid for it, you don't need to say thank you. And I just find it so frustrating how so many people are incapable of receiving a compliment in a gracious way. I think you've just highlighted something really interesting. I completely agree. And, you know, I found myself doing it over the years as well. And I think women particularly are not great at receiving compliments. And it's something I've really had to practice and stop myself mid-sentence from doing exactly what you just said 
because when someone does say thank you, like you say, it's a compliment. It's just expressing gratitude is one of the best things you can do for yourself and for others. What you've just said is extremely interesting. But I think there's a yeah, there's huge opportunity to improve your happiness just by doing that simple act of accepting a compliment. Yeah, and I learned that from my mother because, and not in a good way, <laughs> she was terrible at accepting compliments and she was very bad at receiving gifts. And somebody would give her a gift and whether it was a Christmas gift, a birthday gift, a hostess gift when she had people coming for dinner, she just would brush it off. And if people complimented her on what she was wearing or something that she'd done, she would say something to the effect of, oh, this old dress, or you've complimented me on my cooking, but the the meat was overcooked, or I'm not happy with how it's turned out, rather than just saying thank you. Mm. And I vowed, once I realised what she did, And how much it annoyed me when I would give her a gift and she'd say, oh, you shouldn't have. It's like, actually, if I didn't, I would never hear the end of it. If I didn't give you a gift for your birthday. So, yes, I absolutely had to. But also, you should have just said thank you. And because I gave it to you because I wanted to, not because I felt any sense of obligation. And I think that's what a lot of people get confused with is when nice things are done for them they often feel that the other person is ob- feels obligated to do it, whereas I prefer to believe that people do nice things for you or kind things for you because they choose to and they want to. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And the thing I've struggled with in this space in the last probably 18 months is, I mean, you probably get a little bit of this as well, is when you put yourself out there in the public domain and you do a lot of speaking and run programs where you're actually positively impacting people's lives, the amount of people that now email me or come up to me and say, oh, you know, what you're doing is amazing and you're so inspiring and your story's so inspiring I've really struggled to accept compliments like that because I feel if I turn around and say thank you, then I sound like I'm not humble. So that's been a real challenge for me the more visible I become. And like you say, I mean, I think people just want to hear a thank you, but I also don't want to be a wanker. (laughs) My response to that, because I do get a lot of that as well, my response is thank you so much. It's lovely that you shared that with me or I'm really appreciative that you took the time to tell me that. You've made my day. There you go, Mel. You've helped me. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and it doesn't need to be hard. I think you mentioned before that a lot of people overcomplicate things. And I agree, a lot of people do overcomplicate things. And I think one of my secret skills is helping people simplify the complicated or get out of their head that things are not, that, that things that they think are complicated actually don't need to be. Now, I was listening to a podcast with Gaudat this morning, which was absolutely brilliant. I think he's like, he runs Google X, but he's also become um, a highly credentialed guru in happiness. And he's taken a science-based approach to it. And, and he said the way that he brings happiness to himself is he'll only allow his mind to have two types of thoughts. One is they must be constructive or they must be joyful. And if they're not, basically that's his way of pulling up his brain from stopping negativity because we have a real problem where we, our brain is wired to be more negative than it is positive. And he also said, he said, we have this problem with the way that the brain's wired. It basically, you know, that the whole saying, I think and therefore I am. So mm. often people don't think positively about themselves. Their, their self-image is quite negative. And just because they think it, they believe it to be true. And I was like, there were such simple things that he said you were saying the simple things are the most powerful. And I was like, well, if you could just use those, those two sort of thoughts in terms of I'm only going to have thoughts that are either constructive or joyful, 
it's a really good way to call out how often we can be negative in our own minds yeah. and reframe because at the end of the day, like he said, we are the boss of our minds and sometimes we forget that and we allow our minds to be the boss of us and I think that such simple insights help me better understand what's going on with what I call the epidemic of anxiety and depression that's currently going on in our society and globally. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think if we spoke to other people the way that sometimes we speak to ourselves, we'd be very lonely very quickly and people would call us out on that behaviour. So why is it acceptable to be so negative and unpleasant to ourselves about things that we that are not true a lot of the time but things that that little negative voice in our minds pops up and talks to us about maybe because we think we're undeserving yeah maybe i think we all need to snap out of that easier said than done <laughs> for a lot of well, people it comes back to your original point i mean happiness is not just about being kind to others it's sometimes the greatest happiness comes from just being kind to yourself exactly one of the things i talk a lot about is how do we become connectable and how do we connect and you have to be connectable and connect with yourself first before you can genuinely connect with other people and three of the things that i think are really important to become connectable are being kind showing empathy and being authentic and if you're not kind to yourself or if you don't show empathy to yourself, then how can you ever show that to other people? I completely agree. But what's interesting is, again, it always for me comes back to grassroots and education. And where is the teaching for any of us to understand what it looks like to be kind to ourselves? I believe that we inherently know how to do that when we're born and we develop behaviours where we're not kind to ourselves because we watch the people who raise us and who are around us be unkind to themselves. And what's that expression, you can't be what you can't see. Well, if you grow up in an environment where your mother is always putting herself down or criticising herself, then you believe that that's the normal behaviour, that you have to always put yourself down and criticise yourself as well. And I think it's hard to get out of that cycle if that's what you grow up seeing all the time. Well, for me, it's opposite though. I mean, I've got a mother who's complete opposite of that. She's actually very kind to herself to the point where it can be perceived as self, like as in my younger years, it's I perceived it as selfish. But now as a, mm. a mother and a grown up, I think she's actually been very smart in the way that she's been kind to herself. So for me, my sort of um, process has not been the same as that. I'm trying to work out where it has come from in terms of not being as kind. And the other thing that I think is fascinating, you know, as part of intentional adaptability, we teach people how to be curious. And one of the first things we teach them in how to be curious in the everyday is how to become more curious about themselves. And it just blows me away how few people in today's society, smart, educated people, are not in, not in tune with how they're feeling. They have like you ask them how they feel and they just, they have no idea because they're so rarely curious about themselves because they're so caught up in busy. Yeah. And busy is the enemy of so many things. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other podcast. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it really is. So I just want to segue a little slightly. You mentioned a few moments ago that we are in a world where we have a lot of anxiety and depression. Mm. And yet we're so, from a connection perspective, we're technologically more connected than ever with our phones and with our, you know, with screens and with, well, it's technology that's allowing us to have this podcast right now because I'm in Brisbane and you're in Melbourne. 
And yet loneliness has doubled since the 80s, and I'm taking this off your website, and mental well-being of our society is in crisis because of stress and anxiety. And Black Dog Institute tells us that 20% of Australians between the ages of 18 and 65 will have a mental health issue this year, usually due to stress or anxiety. What do you think we can do about that? From a happiness perspective, what can we do to help stop that or to turn the tide I think there's kind of two big things that are driving that dull being turned up significantly in the last 10 years. And I'd say the first one is the exponential growth in technology. So to your point, we've never been more technologically connected. Technology does unbelievable things for us in terms of the fact that you and I, you know, can have this, like you said, have this conversation. What I'm seeing it do for people with disabilities blows your mind. It makes our lives a hell of a lot more convenient. But at the same time, it overstimulates our brain. And with this fast growth in technology, what has not happened in parallel is an educational piece to actually help people self-regulate and be able to, well, what we talk about, intentionally adapt to the pace and scale of change in a way that is meaningful for them and in a way that is actually keeping them mentally well. And so the level of connectedness is actually disconnecting people from themselves and it's disconnecting people from others. So most people now opt for digital connection over human connection. And whilst it's great in terms of convenience where you and I can't physically be in the same room, the benefits are not the same. When you don't humanly connect with people at the same frequency as past generations, it impacts skills that you need, I think, to be mentally well and happy. So if I'm not humanly connecting the way past generations have, which is an innate skill, we are born able to do this, it diminishes my ability to be able to read body language, it diminishes my ability to be able to empathise with other people, it diminishes my ability to then be able to have difficult conversations. It impacts then my ability to be more resilient because I'm not having those conversations. It impacts my feeling of connectedness and belonging, which then plays into the loneliness epidemic that we're we're seeing. So I think we are too technologically connected and the whole convenience thing, this drive for more and more convenience, I say to people, so what are you doing now with all your spare time that, you know, all of these apps have now freed you up from? Like how, what are you doing with it? No one has any free time, which I find fascinating in itself. We've just filled it with more social media or more technology. The other thing that's really interesting, so I think the lack of human connection is extremely problematic. And I think the other thing is our brains are so overstimulated by technology that they're not having time to sort of settle and recalibrate. We know there's so much science out there that talks about the best ideas come in the stillness. Mm. You know, they come when we are in the shower because we can't be on our phones in the shower, when we're out walking. (laughs) That's exactly right. And I say that all the time. It used to be the toilet for a lot of people. And now we know most people are on the phone on the toilet. So that's the other problem is our brains are so overstimulated now And I had a psychiatrist that I interviewed a little while back who's doing some amazing stuff with virtual reality, helping cure people with phobias. So again, technology doing amazing things that we couldn't do before at the same pace. But she said to me something that really struck a chord. And she said, a busy mind, an overstimulated mind will go to anxiety. It's only a matter of time. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a hell of a lot. And especially like I see it with my nine-year-old son and his mates, and I'm so strict 
around how much technology he is allowed to use in the everyday. Because there's no greater example of this is when you watch children and try and take the tech away from them. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I um, do a little exercise with a lot of my clients to say how much time each day do you spend on your phone? And, you know, all the latest smartphones now will tell you how many minutes you've had on your phone every day. And I think the average person spends between four and five hours looking at their phone. And usually that's a social media app and not a productivity tool to help them do their job or live their life more effectively. (laughs) And I was saying this to my niece who's 14 or 13 and she pulled up hers and it was 15 minutes. And I said, what? And she said, no, I don't use my phone very much. And when she does, it's deliberate. Mm. But she plays seven sports. And so she has no time to use her phone because she's always <sighs> swimming or running or playing netball or playing AFL or doing whatever else it is. And so when she's on her phone, it's to communicate with her friends through Instagram or through WhatsApp or whichever messaging app she's using. But I compare her with her brother, who is 11. And if he was given a choice, he would have his iPad or his phone surgically attached to him at all times because he is obsessed with it. Will soon be an option. Well, he's, I know. And he's also, um, he plays just as many sports and is just as sport mad. But if he's not running around, he needs a technological device of some sort to be doing things on it. And Mm. I find it really interesting because they grew up in the same home with two parents who are very untechnologically smart. I'm convinced the only reason that either of them have a smartphone is because they have to have it for their jobs. And if they were given more of a choice, they wouldn't ever have one at home. And so they don't use it. And so they're certainly not modelling bad behaviour for their children because they're like you can ring them and they call you back hours later when they say, oh, yeah, I thought I'd just look at my phone to see if anyone's called me. (laughs) It's interesting to me how different they both are when they're inherently so similar. Yeah, I heard something, again, I read and listen a lot and on a podcast the other day and it was an Australian author, journalist, who, a researcher, and he'd just written a book on what's actually going on with the next generation in terms of technology and how it is actually impacting them, both in terms of the way that their cognition works but also in terms of their mental health. And he was saying that the research shows that most boys will spend time, like their whole, the reason they spend so much time on technology is to compete from a gaming perspective. So boys are, even older boys are much more engaged from a gaming perspective and that competition and girls use it for connection. So girls are more likely to spend a lot more time on social media and boys are likely to spend a lot more time gaming with one another. Oh, interesting. It's different uses, but the time spent was was not. What is that book called? Do you remember? I will send you the link. It was an ABC podcast and it was absolutely brilliant. And I can't remember what the book's. He's only just released it. But I tell you what he, I mean, the stuff that we're talking about, I've read a lot about this. I have a lot of conversations when I go to Singularity University at NASA around this stuff with some of the top AI and tech innovators in the world. And this guy, he had done his homework and some of the stuff that he knew, you know, for someone who spends a lot of time in this stuff, he gave me insight that I hadn't come across before in terms of research. It was fascinating. Yeah, I've read a similar book recently by Adam Elter called Irresistible. And 
it came out about two years ago and he talks about how apps are designed to be addictive and how games, Fortnite and Minecraft are designed to be addictive and our phones are designed to be addictive so that we continue to go back to them, to look at them, to feel that they've vibrated when they haven't and the flashing lights and the colours that they use and the sounds that they emit are designed deliberately to make us want to go back again and again and again and again and again every, you know, three to five minutes to pick up our phone to see what we might have missed. Your attention is highly valuable because it makes money for a lot of companies. And I talk a lot about one of the most popular jobs in Silicon Valley is what's termed an attention engineer. And these are people who understand neuroscience and how the brain behaves. And their job is to design technology for addiction. And there's a brilliant ex-Google ethicist was his role, but really basically he wasn't an ethicist. His job was to run what I call a human control room, which was to run a team of these attention ideas to actually look at how they can develop technology for Google that captures as much attention as humanly possible. And his name's Tristan Harris. He's got a brilliant TED Talk and he's now created this, I think it's called the Centre for Humane Technology, which is a not-for-profit where he's bringing together some of the biggest thought leaders in the world to actually look at how technology or how we put some rigour and some standards and some ethics and regulate this area so that these companies can't get away with what's going on. Oh, that sounds amazing. I'll have to have a look at that and pop it in the show notes as well. The other thing you might want to have a look at that I saw today, just to throw this, this another spanner in the works, I had someone send me today that Facebook, where are we? Facebook is actually now spending a significant amount of money on brain experiments to create a device that actually reads your mind. That's a bit scary. Yeah, I'll send you that one as well. It's great. That'd be great. I might not read that before I go to bed at <laughs> night because I might have a nightmare. <laughs> Well, we all know how good Facebook is at protecting people's privacy. So I don't know that I'd want them reading my brainwaves. I just caught up with a friend earlier and he messaged me yesterday and said, I'm in Brisbane, are you free for dinner or lunch? And I said, let's catch up tomorrow. I'll be at WeWork in Brisbane. And this was all by text message, not using Messenger or WhatsApp or any other Facebook tool, but just using the text messaging device on our phone. And he said to me when I saw him earlier, he said, I've had ads for WeWork on my Facebook feed ever since you messaged me about being at WeWork tomorrow. Yeah, so they are listening. And so that's, so I read an article the other week from a very reputable source that spoke about, it doesn't really matter if you've got a computer or a phone, they're probably still listening. But you know, those Google Home devices. Oh, I would never either. There's a whole research piece around the fact that they do actually listen in on those conversations to train the machines Mm. to understand the requests better. So that's the intent of it. But therefore, they're actually recording people's private conversations that they don't even know. Exactly. Exactly. What you're saying doesn't surprise me, but I say if you've got a mobile phone or a computer, it really isn't that different. (laughs) Well, I've had conversations with people where we've been in the same room and speaking out loud about different brands or different organisations. And I've had in my Facebook feed later that day ads for that company. And I've just had a conversation with my phone on the table next to me. So there's listening people everywhere. And I think if you truly want to be private, then you need to remove a lot of tech from your world. Yeah, so it's funny. I was in the lift uh, a couple of weeks back in Sydney with one of the top robotics guys. Well, he would be in Australia, if not the world, right? And he works out of, I think it's either University of Sydney or NSW. He's been around forever. This guy is all over technology, like you would not believe. I've seen him speak a number of times Um, he's quite dystopian based on what he knows, but he's extremely impressive. And I managed to get in the lift with him and I was said to him, I've seen you speak. I think, you know, it's quite impressive what you talk about. And 
um, uh, we were talking about technology and the convenience that it provides. And he says, I don't have a smartphone. And I was like, what do you mean you don't have a smartphone? He said, I don't have a smartphone. He said, the only thing my phone does is dial numbers. He said, I have no apps, nothing like that. He said, I don't use Google at all. I mean, this guy is, you know, he's the one of the top in his field. And he said, I said, so how do you get your knowledge? And he had his backpack and he opened up his backpack and it was just full of books. And he said, I won't sell my information for convenience. And he said, that's what you're trading. He said, the convenience you're getting is basically being traded for your private information. And he said, for me, the risk is too high. Wow. And I was like, oh God, I feel sick. <laughs> yeah. It is a bit sick making, isn't it? You know, privacy is long dead. I hear that all the time. Yeah, I find it interesting how people bang on about their privacy rights and their rights around privacy, but then they'll put every moment of their personal lives on Facebook. And I just think, yeah, okay, you forfeited that right (laughs) with everything that you're sharing on Facebook. I've just, in the last two months, deleted all of my Facebook accounts, my business one, everything. Because Mm -hmm. one, I don't think Facebook adds any value to my life. It's probably the first thing I would say. I just find there's so much garbage on it now, like stuff that just, it's just noise. It's not like it used to be. And the other thing is I just have a problem with supporting a business like that that's done what I think is ultimately the wrong thing in the way that they've betrayed people's privacy so blatantly. Yeah, I agree. I still have Facebook for mainly just to stay in touch with family and friends around the world, but I've taken it off my phone and my iPad and I might look at it every couple of days on my computer for about two or three minutes just for a quick touch base and the amount of time that I've reclaimed and the amount of inner peace that I've reclaimed by not having it on my phone and or my iPad is so incredibly greater than I ever would have imagined. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. I tell you what, I haven't missed Facebook at all. I mean, just don't miss it. But like you, I don't have any of those apps. I don't have email on my phone anymore. I mean, you want a happiness hack? Remove all your apps from your phone and only add back the ones that are in and out apps. And what I mean by in and out, not in and out, because social media is not in and out. In and out might be, for example, my calendar. In and out might be my booking my gym session on my body. Or it might be Spotify. Taking photos. Yep. But basically, I don't have any email on my phone anymore. I don't have any Instagram. I don't have any Facebook. I don't have any LinkedIn. And I make sure that I'm logged out of all of those things so it's not easy for me to get into them from my phone. And so my phone now has become, well, its use is different. It's a phone to talk to well, people. It is a phone, yeah. And, yeah. and the thing is, even that has made me so much happier because the other thing, when it's not there, I'm not trying to fill every minute that I have, especially when I because tra- I travel so much. With just this noise, I'm actually creating space for thinking time. And it's funny how much more reading I've been doing since I deleted all of that stuff. I love that. And I do love your automated email responder when I emailed you <laughs> um, and it said, greetings, that I dedicate the majority of my working days to deep work and client connection. So I only check my emails twice a day. And if you need to urgently talk to me, phone me because you love me. old school. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, and, I have had so many people comment on that. And yeah. it's like, I, I just think it's interesting. It's, if everyone loves it, I'm like, just do it, take it, copy yeah. it and use yeah. it. Yeah, I'm going to. Thank you. I do have a footer on my email that says I work at times that suit me. And so if you get an email from me at 2am, don't feel that you need to respond (laughs) until it's Mm. your work practices. And I've had a few comments on that as well, because I do have insomnia. And so I'll frequently, if I can't sleep, I'll get up and I'll do an hour or two's worth of work 
and I'll usually do emails between 1 and 3 a.m. and then go back to bed and not look at email until halfway through the next day. Interesting. I do a lot of work at 5 o'clock in the morning, so um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah, People are like, what are you doing at 5 o'clock? And it's like, well, I have a lot of conversations with the US and to be quite honest, I actually like... I like starting early. I love the two hours in the morning where the world is silent and I can just get stuff done without disruption and or have conversations with people and that's just how I like to work. Yeah, I but get like a lot. Say, I don't have an expectation on anyone else to do the same. I get a lot done between one and three when I can't sleep and it's great. And then I'll go back to bed and get up at 8.30 or 9 o'clock and feel completely okay with that because I need my eight hours and if I don't get it, then it's I'm not worth being around. <laughs> Um, I just want to talk as well quickly. Uh, when I was researching to find out a little bit more about you, I came across your TED Talk that you gave in Melbourne last year. And there's two things that you talked about on that that I loved. And the main ethos was when you said, fear is the greatest leveler you have to create the life you want. And you shared this beautiful example of when you genuinely connected with an audience at a conference that you spoke at where you, <laughs> you know what's coming, don't you, where you dropped your dress and presented in your swimmers. Yeah. How did that come about? What made you decide to do that? Because I loved that and thought, hmm, what if I did that and then just retreated into the negative self-talk? <laughs> <laughs> it still blows me away the impact that that moment had. And so how that came about was I would say it was very early in my journey as to the impact that I wanted to have. And I had been asked to speak at a conference for all women. It was 120 women. I was told that I'd be on at 2.30 in the afternoon, which was the graveyard shift at Fanny Speaker that's ever spoken. You know, that's when you're trying to keep people awake. And it's funny, I get it all the time now. And I think, and what people tell me, they're putting me there to keep the audience awake, which is great. But yeah, I get it all the time. So, and the other thing was I was serving wine at lunchtime. So it was even tougher. And I knew a lot of the other female speakers. And so I knew they'd be on their A A game. And I'm like, how am I going to stand out? But equally, how am I going to get the women in that room to walk away and look at the world through a different lens? How am I going to get them to walk away curious enough to want to make a change that could be truly impactful in the context of their happiness? And I've been thinking about it for a couple of months, you know, because I knew the gig was coming up and it was one of those light bulb moments at like two o'clock in the morning where I sat up in bed and I was like, that's it. And I always have a, you know, I've had a sticky notes next to my bed with a pen because I find that, again, when you get into that stillness, often when you get into bed or when you wake up at night because there's nothing else going in your brain, it's where your best ideas happen. I keep a notebook by my bed for that reason. Yeah. And so I rung my dad the next morning who was like, oh gosh, 77 or something. And he's one of my biggest advocates. And I said to him, this is what I'm going to do. And I thought, if he tells me I've lost the plot, you know, I won't do it. And he said, this is the best idea you've ever had. And so I basically wanted to get the women in that room to realise that happy change was found when you learn to get comfortable in discomfort. And the one thing that I knew as a woman who has never been happy with the way that she looks and, you know, I was very overweight for a long time in my earlier years and then turned everything around and got very healthy and changed my whole lifestyle, but even doing all of that didn't fix what was going on in my head in terms of body image. I knew that there wasn't a woman in that room, be she curvaceous or small, that couldn't appreciate how uncomfortable it would be standing on a stage and delivering a keynote in the bathing suit. So basically I stepped onto that stage and I took off my bohemian wraparound dress and it was totally unexpected. I told no one I was going to do it. 
And I said, love me or hate me, you will not forget me. And if there is only one thing that you take away from today, it's that happy change is found when you learn to get comfortable in discomfort. And I can honestly tell you it doesn't get any more fucking uncomfortable than this. And I hadn't even delivered my talk and, you know, the room went crazy. I had a standing ovation. And that moment then went global and viral and created a movement. And it's insane how it still resonates to this day with people. I absolutely loved it. And I really wish that I could have been in the audience when you did that. (laughs) Have you had conference organisers or event organisers ask you since if you'll do that again? No, never. And it's really funny because when it all went nuts afterwards, it was never a PR stunt. Um, I never expected to do anything other than move the women in that room and give people something to chuckle about, yeah? Mm. I then got on a plane and went on holidays for a week, which was crazy timing, and I was up in the Gold Coast with my brother and I was freaking out because it, it was in all these media publications. I had journalists ringing me. The Daily Mail in UK rang me and wrote a whole feature piece. Like, it was crazy. And I was freaking out going, oh, my God, now I'm going to be the girl that has to deliver a keynotes in her bathing suit (laughs) and I was like I'm not doing that that's not what this was about and um, I rung well I got referred to one of the top PR people in Australia and he was really lovely and spent an hour on the phone with me and he said you never have to do this again he said now you talk about why you did what you did and the impact it created yeah great Um, and no one ever asked me to do it again but people love me talking about it and I love how it just embodies the Brene Brown quote that you had on the wall behind you that says yeah. you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you can't choose both. And that action that you took just so screamed that at me. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who's quite confident, I've always have been, but I, even as someone who speaks a lot and is quite confident, it was one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever done in my life. But I'm glad I did it. I'm impressed you did it at the very beginning and not at the very end of your presentation. (laughs) I'm impressed you just did it. But to do it first and then have to present for 45 minutes in your swimmers is very different from presenting the entire thing in a dress and then in the last couple of minutes before you rush off stage. Well, it was funny. I actually put my dress back on because what happened five minutes in, it was actually, it was not warm. And um, I basically said to everyone, I'll pop my dress back on so that I don't have to, you don't have to stand here and look at me for the next 40 minutes. Um, And, you know, and I was like, oh, let me put my my dress back on. I'll give me a minute. I just want to adjust it because um, otherwise my boobs are going to be hanging out. Like that's what I actually said. And it doesn't really matter, does it? I didn't think about like always concerned about these things. It doesn't matter now that I've stood here in my bathing suit. So they didn't have to suffer through 40 minutes of me standing there like that. Oh, that's classic. (laughs) So I just want to wrap up by asking you a couple of quick questions. What's the one thing that you do to help you connect with others? You mean if I meet new people? It could mean new people or it could be how do you connect with people in your world already or it could just be something else. I avoid the standard questions that people ask people when they meet. So the first thing I often ask people when I meet them is who are you? Tell me who you are as a human being. Mm. You don't need to tell me how important you are or what your work is because I just find that when we talk about what we do, basically we immediately put people into boxes and often those boxes are just wrong. And so I try and avoid putting people in boxes and I'm more interested in who they are as a human being because when you ask them that, it makes them think about the things that actually matter in their lives. And I find it extremely insightful and it always takes people aback. Like they're always like, oh, like they just, it's unexpected and they have to think, which I think is always a good thing. And I kind of say to them, you know, like you can't get the question wrong because no one knows you better than you. And um, I think that element of surprise engages people in a different way. And it also, 
what I found, I mean, I, I work with a lot of global companies and very senior executives and they just don't get asked questions like this because they're always defined by their job and the level of trust it builds with them and the depth of relationship it builds with them quickly um, has been really profound. It was never the intent, but it's been really profound how it builds relationships that much quicker. Yeah, I love that. I thought you were going to say whenever you meet somebody, you ask them what makes them happy. Yeah, I do ask that a bit as well, but I always ask first, who are you as a human being? One thing that we've lost touch with is what it means to be human. And I was just going to say, as we become so more technologically connected, it's that human connection that's going missing. Correct. So I think actually talking about our humanness and what it means to be human, and I ask this question all the time. I say to people, especially when I do my podcast and stuff, what does it mean to you to be human? And seriously, the one word that comes up time and time again is connection. Yeah. It's that human, like that physical connection with people. And so when it comes to people that I know, how do I connect with them? As much as possible, I try to connect with them humanly. I will try and connect in informal environments rather than formal environments. You know, I do a lot of walks in the park with people. Like people want to meet with me. I say, come and walk my dog with me. I I just think, again, the conversation when you're not in a sterile work environment, even if it's work conversation, it just goes to a different level. Yeah, I love that. I used to have working meetings when I was in government with a team of people. If I ever needed to have that difficult conversation, I'd just say, let's go for a walk. We'll do a walking meeting, not a working meeting, Mm -hmm. a walking meeting. (laughs) Because you get so much more honesty out of somebody when they're not eyeballing you across the table. Correct. Environment is so important. Yeah. My husband always says, you always ask the difficult questions when we're in the car and we're driving. So he won't answer. If he's the driver, he'll say, I need to focus on driving. Stop talking to me. (laughs) And so now whenever we're on a plane together, I'll ask him the hard questions. (laughs) And he's like, I can't escape anywhere. Can I? Like, no, no, you can't. You're going to answer this question. Now he says, though, whenever we fly anywhere together, it's like, I don't want to sit with you (laughs) because you'll ask me the hard questions. It's, you know, I've got this Saturday night as a a space alumni that you are, you'll appreciate this. You know, I've got 10 random people that I know, half of which are space cadets, half of which are not coming to sit around my dining room table to play cards against humanity. And everyone's bringing a plate and everyone's bringing a bottle of wine and it's a communal dinner. And that's how we're going to connect. And I've never played it. I've just gone and bought it, but I've heard great things and uh, things like that. I run wine and whiteboards nights around my dining room table where again we bring together 10 random strangers that I've met through my different walks of life and we basically get everyone to nominate a social issue that they're passionate about and then we vote on them you can't vote for your own and we just take the top two and we problem solve them on a whiteboard drinking wine I love that we're gonna run an afterburner space event so maybe you need to come down to Melbourne (laughs) I think I do so my next question is what book or podcast or resource has really impacted on how you connect oh And it can be on how you connect with yourself or on how you connect with others or on how you connect with your dog, open to how you interpret connect. I would say there's two books and what's interesting to me is they're both by the same author. And if I think about, I mean, like I said, I read a lot, the the two books that I will recommend to anyone I meet that struggles with the pace and scale of change that we are experiencing are both by Cal Newport. So The book that he did, Deep Work, which is all about how to create space in your life to think and do the work that matters, was a game changer to me. 
to the point where I think I read that book two years ago now. And I have, again, you know, habits. We spoke at the start, habits and behaviours. You know, I have a deep work schedule on my wall where I track the, or I set a goal for the week of how many hours I want to spend disconnected thinking and working on the things that really matter to me. I have the Freedom app on my computer and on my mobile phone so that I basically lock myself out of distracting apps for long periods of time, like an hour and a half to two hours. I go for walks in the middle of the day with my dog to think. Like that book changed the way that I work and that doesn't happen often. And what that's done is it's enabled me to connect better with myself in terms of how I spend my time on the things that truly matter to me in life, be it in my work or even with my son. It's changed how I invest time with him. And then the second book is his book that he only released in the last six months that I had on order as soon as it came out because the first one was so good. I was like, I have to have this. And it was called Digital Minimalism. That's currently my favourite book. Again, it just changed my behaviour. Like I love a book that makes you go, this is worth changing for because I can see the benefits. And that was the book that made me remove all the apps from my phone. It reinforced the deep work stuff, but it took it to a new level because it was so practical I think we've become so consumed by the latest thing in technology and being on trend and being up to date and and having all this convenience that we don't know how to disconnect anymore. And what has become extremely apparent to me through Cal's work is how important being disconnected is. And I actually think in many ways, and not disconnected from human beings and not disconnected from yourself, but disconnected from technology, I think actually doing that on a daily basis intentionally, the most amazing thought leaders in the world, the greatest thinkers in the world, that's what they do. Absolutely agree. And by the time this podcast goes to air or goes live, I will have launched my mentoring program called Disconnect to Reconnect to help people turn off the technology or to help people control the technology so that it doesn't control them as much as it does for so many of us. Anything that helps people do that is um, a huge step. I hope so, yeah. And especially anyone who struggles, I think, with anxiety. One of the treatments that the GPs should be handing out to people with anxiety is getting them to employ practices that enable them to disconnect from technology more often. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And finally, where can people find you if they'd like to learn more about who you are and what you do and podcast? Uh, Bekindred.com is where you'll find sort of all of the, the information about who I am and and what I do and the podcasts and videos of the talk in the bathing suit or the the TED talk. There's also a really great assessment that we've just updated, which is all about if you're wanting to understand better how you can effectively navigate the pace and scale of change, we have an intentional adaptability assessment that will enable you to better understand where you're at in that space and what you can do, like some of the things we've just spoken about, really simple hacks to help you amplify your happiness and your ability to consciously adapt. And what I mean by that is bring meaning and intention to the forefront of your decision making and not let all this distraction consume your life and the other space is LinkedIn if you just look for me in LinkedIn Penny LaCasso I do as you would know Mal I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn I, I share a lot of videos and random thoughts and interesting stuff that I'm reading and that seems to connect with a lot of people as well it does and what's your podcast called it's called human first and it's all about how we put humans first in a world of technology I love your podcast by the way So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I really appreciate your time and it's been great to get to know you a little bit more. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye. Thank you.